Chapter Eleven of Two Sides to Every Question by Maud Jean Frank. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Chapter Eleven: Uncertainty's Cares. Sure, Miss Thea, I don't believe Mister Delta's well. It's neither the mate nor the drink that he cares for now. It's meself as sorry to see the white face of him in Thiley as he comes in every night and goes off at once to his room. "'And I is after having tay, Mr. Delta, sir,' says I. "'No, thank you, Bridget,' says he, as civil-like. "'A jug of cold water and a glass, that's all I want. "'Sure, and it's cold comfort anyhow, is that same after a hard day's work?' "'Sure, Bridget, you needn't be after concerning yourself about Mr. Delta. "'He won't starve. "'No doubt he gets his tea from some of his fine friends before he comes home. "'Our fare isn't good enough for him nowadays.' Thea was seated on the old couch in the parlour, surrounded by a litter of ribbons and lace and flowers. She was trimming a hat for herself, for an evening's delectation was before her. Mr. Holt had presented her and her sister with tickets for a concert, and he and Mr. Macpherson, whose attentions were becoming a little more demonstrative, were to escort them thither. A long time indeed, thought Thea, before Mr. Delta would have offered them such politeness, however civil he might be to Bridget. "'It's a cold heart you have entirely, Miss Thea,' said Bridget indignantly. "'But it's easy to see where the shoe pinches,' she muttered to herself rather spitefully. For Mr. Delta was a favourite of hers. He never made fun of her brogue or called her names. He was too much of a rail gentleman for that, she said, and she meant it. She was right in her conjectures. Arthur Delta was not well, but it was from the fears of speculation he was suffering, the alternation of hope and despair. The excitement of success followed by the depression of fear. These are the feelings that rob the man of rest, that keep sleep, the balmy restorer of the weary, far distant from the overtasked brain. And all these fluctuations of hope and fear followed in such quick succession on that first fortunate or unfortunate venture. He had made money, but it had not brought with it either comfort or peace. His heart craved for more. He was not satisfied now with small gains. He was feverishly anxious with every fresh venture. He was getting worn in the conflict, but not contented with its results. Speculation does not allow a man to sit quietly, calmly down and wait. True, there are some that can even do this, but they are not men of Arthur Delta's strength, perhaps not of his peculiar necessities. For in all his eager desire for gain and the acquisition of wealth, he had only one object before him, and that was his cousin Elsie. Had she only known it? Did she not know it? Yet was she nightly listening to words of protestation from another whose wealth she loved, but himself? No. She was her father's child after all. She had been too carefully cradled in luxury to dream of relinquishing it. But Arthur Delta knew nothing of this. Nothing further than her lengthened stay in Melbourne proved she was making new friends there. It annoyed and perplexed him, and her letters were so short and, well, frivolous and unsatisfactory. She replied to none of his queries. She answered none of his protestations. He was, Dear Arthur, Dear Cousin Arthur, and nothing further. The various special pleader could have found nothing in her little scented notes on which to found a breach of promise case. And here he was endeavouring day and night, eh, and far on into the morning with his pen, to gain a home for one who never dreamt of occupying it, but who was stifling the dreams of her young heart with the eclat of what the world would deem a splendid match. Her dreams of the future were gold-tinted, in which Arthur and his enduring love had no place. 
so fair and yet so cold so worldly yet after all these little scented notes breathing of rose or heliotrope or violets and full of melbourne gaieties and trifling chit-chat were so like elsie he did not fear very much elsie who so soft and sweet and delicate could tease him with her very sweetness for even the rose has its thorns little sharp barbs that make one pay for inhaling or careless gathering he fretted it is true at her continuous absence but he was busy winning gold for her and he tried to be content with the dainty pink and lilac notes that were laid from time to time by the side of his breakfast plate after having been turned in twenty different ways and held in twenty different lights by thea and adelaide and marguerite delaney in succession he was not well he was losing his appetite bridget was quite right and thea's conjecture that he took his tea with his fine friends as she jealously and spitefully expressed it was altogether wrong he went but seldom to the park though his aunt and lily always received him kindly for somehow, after a visit there, amidst the evidences of wealth and luxury already attained, his own prospect seemed so far distant. He was slow at making new acquaintances. His gentlemanly bearing, his handsome face, would have been a passport, and secured him the entree of many houses, had they not been still further backed by his relationship to the Clintons of Clinton Park. But he cared for none of them. "'Let me make my own position first, he thought to himself and then for acquaintance. As it was, he would have been gladly welcomed anywhere, had he but given the permission. The note from his uncle, and subsequent visit to the park, from which he had sanguinely hoped not a little, had, after all, subsided into a non-entity. It was all very well to receive that gentleman's commendations, but he had allowed himself to expect something more than these. His uncle certainly knew how poor he was, and how little indeed he was likely to be able to throw into any venture though he congratulated him as if he had made a fortune if he did know he evidently wished to ignore the fact and at any rate made no offer to unloose his purse-strings or to offer the loan which would have been so acceptable all arthur's proud blood rose to his face at the thought of asking he went back to his dull little room more determined than ever to win a position and win little miss elsie even from her proud father he was fairly in for it now he threw the whole of his salary into the business and toiled hard in the night watches keeping the accounts of others while his own had he but known it were getting more and more confused all this incessant anxiety and labour was telling terribly on his health why could he have not rested satisfied to mount steadily upwards by a slower process was elsie indeed worthy of all this waste of health and life this dissipation of his mental powers this harassing care alas she was not worthy but he still deemed her so still saw her in his evening vigils fair and sweet and lovely and never for a single moment false there was only good simple-hearted kind bridget to note his paling cheek his failing appetite his languid movements those who would have loved and cherished and warned him were thousands of miles away his mother who would have leaned her dear boy's head on her own fond bosom and stroked away its throbbing by the magic of her own soft touch knew not even of his trouble well for her that she did not for her own health was slowly fading away and little hints alarming enough to arthur so far distant and so powerless to help or add in any way to her peace and comfort came mail after mail adding their weight to his already heavy burden and making him more resolute than ever to keep that burden from her gentle loving ears 
"'Oh, mother, mother, would I had never left you!' he exclaimed one evening in tones of pent-up agony, as after reading his English letters, just in from the mail of that day's date, he threw himself down on his bed in his clothes, too weary and worn with work and excitement and sorrow to remove them, just as the old post-office clock struck three. Several things had conspired most woefully to depress him that day. In addition to a more than usually melancholy letter from his sister Kate, in which she spoke of her mother's increasing weakness and the doctor's fear on her account that she would never see another spring, there were two or three pencilled lines from his dear mother herself, but so feeble, so delicate, so quivering in their tracery that it seemed almost like a message from the grave. Then, just because he had thrown all his ready cash into a fresh speculation, using up the last of it in responding to one of those inevitable and occasional calls of so much per share that these mining companies are always making, he had, for the first time since he had been at Clement House, allowed himself to run a month in arrears of his rent and board. To his intense chagrin, Mrs. Delaney had gently reminded him of the failure, politely requesting the payment. She had a heavy account to make up. What was he to do? He must wait till the dividends came in. But would she? He never even thought of asking her, but after sitting with knitted brow, discussing that most troublesome of knotty questions, the ways and means of getting out of difficulty, he slowly rose, unlocked his dressing-case, and stood surveying the hidden treasures it contained. Something to remind him of each of his home darlings, an antiquated seal stamped with the delta crest, a memento of his father. Not that, not that. It was a family heirloom, that crest, a little pardonable morsel of pride, cherished in spite of poverty. For its old memories of former position he would not have parted with that seal, had it not been that dear father's parting gift. And this, a tiny circlet, seed pearls and sapphires, pure blue and white blended together by a delicate tracery of gold. It had been a girlish ring of his mother's, so small, but not too small for her slender fingers, for he had often slipped it on and tried to fancy how that little hand, still white and delicate, had looked in those girlish days, the days of her past loveliness. He put it reverently by. What? Sell his mother's ring? No! No! There was a curious gold snuff-box, carved in many quaint devices. He hesitated over that. Another heirloom of the family. He presently passed it by. Emerald earrings. An aunt's gift for his future wife. He was not an admirer of earrings, but he could not make away with them. They were not his own to give. Finally, taking a handsome signet ring and a set of gold studs, a former purchase of his own, he sallied out through the streets of Adelaide into one of its back streets, succeeded in pawning them for less than half their value, though quite sufficient for his present purposes. It was the first time in his life he had ever dreamed of doing such a thing, and he slunk like a thief from the place of loans, creeping away on the darkest side of the streets, with all the blood of the Delta and Clinton lineage resenting its necessity. Mrs. Delaney's claims were satisfied. His own heart was not. There was another cause for disquietude. Things had not been going on very pleasantly in the office lately. His uncle had been out of humour. Tom Alton had strangely lacked in attention to his duties, and had received a severe reprimand. Arthur, indeed, could not avoid suspicion that he himself was being talked at. Was he throwing less interest in the office duties, or was it his distraught appearance that fostered suspicion? 
poor Tom Alton. Something ailed the boy too. Was his health failing? Was his home life full of care, he with a mother and sister to love him? Or was it the same old tale? The thirst for gold is never satisfied. It knows no rest. Was the boy also infected by the tattle, the mining tattle, of the office? So thought Arthur, as seated at his own desk late one afternoon, a few days after the pouring forth of Tom's poor little money-box, and its silvery shower into the awful chasm of the Blinman mine, a mind which seemed to swallow up all in its awful cavity, and give back none. He watched the boy in his blind endeavour to add up a long list of figures which would not resolve themselves into anything like definite shape or form, and this because the mind followed not the figure. Every now and then, indeed, he broke off from his employment, making little quick calculations on his own account on infinitesimal morsels of blotting paper, one moment as if writing for life or death, the next crushing or tearing into shreds the tell-tale figures. This had nothing to do with his work, and Arthur knew it. "'You don't look very bright this afternoon, Tom,' he said presently, leaving his own desk where he had just sorted and put away his papers. "'Come, you are tired, I see.' headache eh well let me tackle this for you for it is just closing time tom's head did ache his heart too for that matter but he did not confide that last fact to his friend he gratefully gave up his seat and stood by while row after row of figures were rapidly added and put down on the blotting paper so conveniently at hand he had nothing presently left him to do but copy them down in the book you look worried tom said delta as he closed the office door and the two passed down the street together. Tom involuntarily glanced at his companion's face, and questioned whether he could not well return the compliment. "'You've been dabbling in shares, have you not?' Arthur presently asked. "'How could he know that?' thought Tom. He did not remember that a fellow feeling makes us wondrous wise as well as kind, so he answered a little shyly. "'Oh, just a little, Mr. Delta.' "'I thought so,' was the reply. "'I thought I knew the signs.' "'And come to think of it, Tom, I don't fancy either you or I are much happier for it.' Tom knew he was not. Already he was beginning to wish he had left his box unbroken, and that mining shares were not even dreamt of. He could not eat, drink, or sleep in comfort for his. They parted at Mrs. Delaney's door. "'Do you board here, Mr. Delta?' Tom asked, as Arthur opened the door with his latch-key. "'For the present I do, but only till I can hear of something that better suits me.' "'Good night, Tom.' "'He's a nice fellow,' thought Tom, as he went his way. "'He'd just be the very one for our place, if that would suit him, though perhaps it would not be good enough.' This had occurred only a short time before, and as he lay all night, just as he had thrown himself in his distress, heaping up his burdens, and for hours doing anything but sleep, thoughts of Tom's quiet home, a glimpse of which he had once seen, came like a calm to his mind. If they would only receive him— Tom's mother, if anybody could, might do him good. Thinking of that at last, he closed his eyes to the whole day's sorrows, and heavily slept. End of chapter 11